0: This is Retail Retold, the story of how that store ended up in your neighborhood. I'm your host, Chris Ressa, and I invite you to join my conversation with some of the retail industry's biggest influencers. This podcast is brought to you by DLC Management. Welcome to Retail Retold, everyone. Today I'm joined by Doug Green. Doug is from MSC Retail in Philadelphia. Known Doug a long time, excited for him to be here. Welcome to the show, Doug. Thanks, Chris. Good to be with you. You too, man. So why don't you tell everybody a little bit more about who Doug is and what you do?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, so again, thanks Thanks for having me. I'm a big fan of what you're doing and uh, I'm glad we reconnected. And uh, I love love talking shop. I love uh, you know, explaining to everyone the world as, as I see it. We have a pretty unique and diverse lens here at MSC. So I think it, it kind of Colors uh, the, the way we see the industry. And then I, you know, always respected you and uh, the way you see the world. And um, you know, love well, just uh, talking shop. So, uh, MSC is a full-service retail-only um, brokerage firm. Uh, leasing, investment sales, management, consulting. Headquartered in Philadelphia, we have uh, two satellite offices: uh, one in Los Angeles and one in New York. Uh, we are 30 people in total. You know, roughly 24, 25 brokers and the rest uh, support staff. Most people probably know us reputationally as an urban firm, um, just given the really unique market share we have here in Center City, Philadelphia. But um, really proud of the incredibly diverse, as I mentioned, uh, practice that we've created. So we're we're 50/50 suburb city, 50/50 tenant landlord. Um, we represent about 100 retailers and restaurants exclusively as they expand to the Delaware Valley region, very wide array of of tenants ranging from high end, lifestyle and high street, all the way down through uh, discount, grocery, uh, kind of lower end retail. And on the landlord side, we represent about 20 million square feet exclusively. And again, a really diverse array of uh, lifestyle centers, power centers, grocery anchored, of course, urban mixed use, Um, And then we do a lot of consulting, um, master planning work for business improvement districts um, and uh, college and university work. So we represent a bunch of uh, universities and colleges across the country, helping them think about retail on their campus and and master planning that campus for them. And then, of course, uh, you know, to the extent there's retail they own, we, we lease it for them. Uh, I've been with the company for coming up on 20 years. Uh, I've been a partner at the firm for the last 12. And um, I oversee the day-to-day operations uh, of our company, uh, from business development to strategic direction, hiring, um, really touch every aspect uh, of our company.
0: So I got a million questions. Uh, So one, the, the thing that surprised me, I didn't even realize, and so I knew tenant landlord, I didn't realize you were fifty-fifty urban suburban. That yeah. surprised me. Wow. Yeah, I,
1: I think you know. Look, our we have great market share in the city. We've been here the longest of any of our competitors. You know, when when Philadelphia was not a super fun market to lease, when Center City was not a wasn't as, as vibrant as it was today. Back in the late '90s, early 2000s, we were here um, for for better or worse. So we, we've been doing it the longest. We have great market share. And our listings tend to be higher profile, you know, big signs on Walnut, high profile tenants, Apple, Lululemon, et cetera. So, like, it tends to catch a lot of eyes. Um, Having said that, uh, the suburbs in the Philadelphia market, like most MSAs, are vast. Uh, We cover the entire eastern half of the state, so State College all the way east. Central and Southern New Jersey. So call it the Brunswick South and, and all of Delaware. So that, you know, that's a lot of geography. Um, and, you know, while the deals are bigger in the city, um, there's just more of them in the suburbs. And it tends to all kind of equal out. So revenue wise, we're 50-50. Wow. Yeah.
0: So you, you mentioned you oversee all, all the day day operations. How much of your time is spent as a person who's running a business versus a real estate person?
1: Yeah, it's a, good, it's a good question. And I'm actually, I, I think I'm pretty proud of the answer, I would say. Um, I'm probably, depends on the week of the month or the, you know, but I would say across, average across the year, I'm probably 60% of my time is spent as a, as a broker and 40% as a executive leading the company. Um, one of the best pieces of advice my partner and I got a long time ago was, you know, you never take your best deal makers off the street. Um, And I'm by no means our best deal maker, but um, I really think it's hard to manage brokers, oversee brokers, add value to their listing or their tenant account or whatever they're working on if you're not still relevant and in it. Um, And it it is a slippery slope, as those who run a brokerage firm know. um, You know, the player coach model is sometimes done well and oftentimes not done well. Um, but I, I, think I balance it pretty well. And I, I think it really makes me a better manager because there's nothing I ask them to do that I either haven't done or I'm not currently doing. And I, you know, allows me to stay really fresh on the market. Um, we are in an information based business. Information is our commodity. That's what we sell as brokers. Right. Um, and when you get too far removed from the, the trenches, the day-to-day access to the information, I think it makes it really hard to manage brokers who are out there doing that. Plenty of people do it. There's plenty of managers that don't do a brokerage and do an incredible job. Um, It's just not me. It's not how I run this company. And um, I I think we've, we're a better company for it.
0: Sure. I I would say to challenge you a bit, it depends on size. I think you guys are sizable now. You get much bigger. Totally. You're not going to be able to do that.
1: Yeah, absolutely, and, and and we 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 are growing, and and part of that growth needs to be a little bit more management. But yeah, I mean, you go look at you know CBRE or any of the big guys; they have a managing director running that city uh, or that region. It's impossible for them to be transactional. There's just too much to manage. Um, but yeah, yeah, I'm definitely in a unique position where I'm able to do it. I can wrap my arms around you know twenty some odd brokers, as you said, much bigger than that, it gets a little unwieldy.
0: Yeah um all right so we're gonna jump into something real quick so we're we're gonna jump in real quick you have a story about a deal in Rittenhouse square which is in philadelphia for those who don't know um about equinox that was like 10 years in the making so i
1: think more yeah um
0: take us away yeah yeah
1: it's um look i think it's a good lesson for any broker in in playing long game, um, which is an important perspective to have as a broker. Um, You know, uh, I first started representing Equinox and really first toured with them, right? Um, 2010, 2011. Um, And it's a really tough requirement for those who've been on either side of an Equinox deal. Um, Very unique spatial requirements. Substantial TI requirement, um, and and really, and, and I applaud them for this. You know, they want the best real estate. I mean, it is a point I want to be there type real estate program, which is very different from a lot of our other higher volume rollouts where they're doing too many to to be that picky, right? Um, and you know, all brokers have that client that says, "I don't need to be in your city. I don't need to do this deal," but if the you know, optimal, perfect bullseye location came up, we'd look at it. Right. And so the first phase of the relationship was, well, you don't need to be on Rittenhouse Square. Trust me. I'm in the market. I know the market. I'm a consumer of the market. Also, Uh, you can be a block off. Trust me. I know the market better than you do. And then that phase went to, okay, they're really not going to (laughs) bite. I'm not going to change their mind. Um, they and, and for those who know him, Jeff Winehouse, who runs uh, I think he's chief development officer at, at Equinox. Um, he literally was like, I want to be on Rittenhouse Square, I want to literally stare out of my club and see the square. And that was that was the direction I got. Um, and and after trying to convince them they were wrong, um, I set out. And those who know Rittenhouse Square, there's not a lot of places you can put a 40,000 square foot, uh, fitness club, um, with a pool. And, um, I mean, it really was one or two, um, two locations. And, you know, I think another good lesson learned and, and something I try to impart on, on the people that I train. And I think it's, it's a great trait for a broker to have is, is a creative vision, right. Um, to see an opportunity where others don't see it, Anybody can go put a square peg in a square hole. Um, you know, T-Mobile is one of my clients. You know, they need to call 24- it C-space, lease
0: space. There's a lot yeah. of people. just C-space, lease space.
1: 2,400 square foot on an end cap in the suburbs. It doesn't take a whole lot of creativity. Um, but there are many programs where you, you really need to be creative and have a vision and, and see something that another broker wouldn't, or maybe your real estate director wouldn't. And uh, I mean, we literally looked at, converting a parking garage right an existing operating functioning parking garage um actually below my office because it was on Rittenhouse Square and it had the ceiling heights and it had the gross GLA and that obviously didn't work out and fast forward a, a number of years um we ended up signing a lease with uh Southern Land Company out of Nashville and um through everything that could go wrong in a you know High-rise development, ground-up new development, um, add COVID in there. Um, the deal is under construction right now. And with any luck, it'll open in the next 10 to 12 months. So,
0: um, you know, without, I, I... Without the new development, would you have found in the space?
1: Um, no. No. I mean... Again, you would have had to go to we're going to clear out multiple floors of an office building, take out a, a, a floor because you needed the ceiling heights. I mean, it would have taken a completely crazy redevelopment, again, redeveloping a parking garage. Um, but if you uh, if you have if you play the long game, if you believe in your ability to pull a rabbit out of a hat, um, have a creative vision, you um, and I really had no other choice, right? It was like if we don't end up on Rittenhouse, we're not coming to Philly. It's that simple. Um, and luckily, along the way, just given the relationship, I was able to do a couple Soul Cycle deals. So that that helped. But um, it, it it is a uh, really, really unique, obviously tenant um, and, and deal and transaction. And when it opens, uh, it's one of those that you know I'll be uh, really, really proud of the uh, of, of of the of the chase to get there.
0: Well, well, congrats. Well one thing I would say is that, you know, because Equinox is such a dynamic urban urban user of real estate, the, the comment that you made about like an office building, knocking out a floor to get the ceiling guys, at least they maybe not that practical, maybe due to construction costs, everything going on in the world, but at least they're a user who can adapt and do that where there's there's a lot of retailers and they should be. Because it's their model where they're like, they have a prototype that is their box. They've got a store planning team that's hundreds of people and this is their layout and you can't move the bathrooms here and this is their box and they go do it everywhere in the country. It's the same looking store. And that's really hard to replicate in urban environments, if not impossible. So you need someone who can go, okay, we're not going to do this in the urban environment and here's how we're going to do it. So at
1: least you had a user who was like that. Um, uh, absolutely. I mean, look, that, that's always the push and pull, right? It's speed versus volume, right? And and if you, if you need to move quickly um, and you need to open stores, you need to be nimble, um, but not, as you said, most tenants aren't. Um, and that's when you end up with a frustrated tenant that needs to open up stores and can't find real estate and has a unique requirement, but they have their program, you know, some some point something's got to give
0: do i'm curious because you know i think this is an important part that you, you, you talked about about a broker which is you were trying to convince the client about that they could be a block offer in house square which i think is an interesting topic because that could go two ways that could be like One, okay, you're you're demonstrating that you really understand the market, or two, and and like, you know, some clients would receive that really well, or two, there's other clients out there that would be like, this guy just wants to argue with me all day, and he's not giving me what I want. And so how, and and I imagine you deal with that often. How do you deal with that balance of that?
1: Yeah, look, ultimately, I I hope, I think, uh, clients are uh, hiring us because... Um, we know the market better than they do, right? We can provide a certain level of expertise. Um, we have our ear to the ground. We're highly transactional. Um, we live here. We work here. We live, eat, and breathe it, right? They're, they're parachuting in. And and yeah, you hope, any broker hopes, that a, that a tenant is going to really rely on them and ultimately trust them and say, look, you know better than I do. You're here. I'm not, right? Um, but not lost on us that they know their brand and they know their company better than we do. And they have a much wider lens than we do, right? They know what works and doesn't work in New York and Miami and in Denver and in LA. And they've tried the, we're going to go one block off. Um, And maybe it's worked and maybe it hasn't. Um, So look, I think it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. I think it's about establishing a level of trust and credibility with the tenant. And I think also, to, to your point, you know, maybe the tenant looks at that broker and they're like, he's just trying to take the easy way out. Right. Like I told him I want to be on Rittenhouse. It's obviously a much heavier lift to do that. Um, sure. If I go a block off, it'd be easier for him. He just wants to get a deal done. Right. Every, every broker fears that reputation of the broker that's just trying to slam a deal. Um,
0: yeah.
1: But, but, but um, you know, again, with Equinox, it's different because they can look at me and say, I don't need to be in Philadelphia. I'd like to be. It'd be great, but if I can't find exactly what I want, I'll just go do Atlanta. I'll just go do Houston. I'll go to Dallas. I don't have to be in Philly. Um, whereas I think other tenants don't have that luxury because they have higher volume expectations from investors or Wall Street, and and they do, you know, air quotes have to be in Philadelphia, so they can't be as picky. So it, it's it's so nuanced, and, and and really just depends on the client.
0: Well. I'm excited for you there. What a cool story. Thanks for sharing. Uh, I'm ex- I, I can't wait for that project to open. Um, it'll be... Uh, you and me both. <laughs> I'm sure you are. Uh, let's, let's change course for a second here. Let's talk about, you know, just what you're seeing in the marketplace today. I'm, I'm curious. I'll make it a high level. Like when someone says, like, what's the market like? And they give you that lie. What, what, what's your response from your lens?
1: Um, my response is, is usually identical always, which is real estate is local. Um, and it's impossible to paint a broad brushstroke and answer that question. Yeah, I, I guess you could you know aggregate the answer from all and average out all my answers from all the different sub markets and pull it all together. But um, it really depends. Uh, urban, suburban. Uh, you know, tertiary markets versus a secondary or primary market, exurban versus primary suburban. Um, you know, if you're talking about the CBD in Philadelphia, uh, for those who know it, market in JFK, abysmal, can't give away space. Why? No one's in the office buildings. It has to be a, a more of a hyper-specific question. Um, so generally speaking... Are, as you- are you running
0: for office? Are you running for office? <laughs> That's a great great political answer um, to give me the real estate is local. So I'll be more specific for you. Uh, I'll be more specific. Talk to me about what's going on in Philly right now. I think you you guys have that retail market corner. Give me what's going on in Philly. And don't tell me, well, it depends. I'm in Rainhouse Square, Northern Philly.
1: (laughs) I'll say generally Philadelphia as a city from a retail perspective is incredibly healthy, surprisingly healthy. Um, We came out of COVID, I would say better than most major metropolitan cities in the country. Philadelphia is depending on how you look at it, a seven or eighth largest city in the country. We're a million five in the city and just over 6 million in the MSA. Some of the high growth cities have kind of leapfrogged us, Houston and Phoenix and, DC MSA but we're still a top 10 uh, city in the country and and um, I really believe that we fared way better than many or most of our contemporaries why we have incredibly dense downtown urban core uh, so when people weren't coming in to go to the office when people weren't coming in from the suburbs to eat dinner and shop when tourists weren't coming in people live here and that provides an incredibly stabilizing factor in a time of, of disruption like, like COVID. Moreover, you have institutions of higher education and advanced medicine, which is, you know, as everyone knows, an incredibly stabilizing force for an economy. So those two things have really, I mean, Philadelphia rebounded way better than I ever could have imagined. I mean, summer of 2020, we were looking around Philadelphia, you know, shocked and horrified. The city was what was was empty. Um, there was civic, uh, and social unrest from, from everything that was going on in the world. I mean, buildings burned down. Um, it was, it was not a great time to be in Philly. And, and, you know, I, I couldn't, uh, blame anyone if they were like, this is a five to 10 year recovery. Instead, it was literally a 12 month recovery. So I've been doing this almost 20 years. Um, I don't say this lightly. I've never seen the retail vibrancy in Philadelphia as healthy as it is today. The vacancy rate is as low as I've seen it in my entire career. The brands that are coming in, and these aren't just you know filling space for the sake of filling, uh, filling space, really relevant uh, new to market brands that are choosing Philly either over the suburbs as an entry point or maybe over another city. Um, so I feel really good about the city right now. The neighborhoods, not surprisingly, are doing incredibly well. Um, people aren't in their offices 5 days a week. They're home. So these neighborhoods which were once pretty sleepy during the the work week are now very vibrant um, and you're starting to see some vertical development in these neighborhoods. So a retailer, you know, 10 years ago that was coming to Philly, it was Rittenhouse Square. There wasn't any other discussion. That was it. Fast forward 10 years and people are talking about, you know, going to Fishtown. People are talking about Going to South Philly, people are talking about going to Fairmount. People are talking about going to East Young, um, as an entry point, or at least as a number two unit after Rittenhouse. So that that's really changed the game for us, and um, and it's just really you know cool cool to see, especially given where we we came from. Um, the suburbs are another conversation. Um, like in many metro areas, the suburbs uh, are incredibly healthy, and and in many cases healthier than the cities. Uh, Again, you know, people aren't going to work five days a week, they're home. Um, And I I would actually argue, and again, it gets back to my comment about real estate is local, and it depends which market you're talking about. But as a whole, um, we have many, 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 many suburban markets where there's just not any vacancy. Uh, We can do all the site tours we want. We can have all the retailers listed on our website we want. But ultimately, if there's no space to put them in, it's really hard for us to make any money. Um, so that, you know, is going to be an interesting thing to track. Um, the recessionary headwinds, I think, have not quite hit. And who knows whether or not that's going to happen. And it's hard to create more supply when, you know, construction financing is tricky and construction pricing is tricky and uh, landowners still have a two-year-ago sense of, of value. It's hard to create that extra value, or that extra supply I should say, that we need I think desperately in a lot of these suburban markets.
0: For sure. I think that's being nice saying the financing and the, and the pricing of construction is being tricky. Is, I can tell you on my end, it's, 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 as a landlord, it's, it's beyond tricky. Uh, so, Probably. Yeah. So the I think that's a it's a really good summation of Philly. I'm curious. So to the retailer out there listening, who's like deciding between, you know, I'm going to do 10 stores and they're like, they got Atlanta on their list. They got Nashville. They got Dallas. They got Boston. They got Boston. Give me the why Philly. Why should that be one of like the 10 they do?
1: Yeah. Um, Sure. Look, at the end of the day, there's no replacement for density, right? I think first and foremost, um, density cures pretty much any ill um, and foot traffic and bodies, right? At any income level, at certain point, density is just uh, hard yeah, to wins. replace. Wins. Um, that, so look, as I said, whether we're the sixth, seventh, or eighth largest city or MSA in the country, you know, we're a it's a big city. It's a big region. One, two, uh, as I said earlier, that Eds and meds stabilizing force, it means we don't get super high in the highs, but we rarely get super low on the lows. And so it's just like really slow and steady, constant, dependable, reliable, uh, trade area. Um, and it's mature, obviously, right. Um, the Northeast as a whole, uh you know, people drive through it and they look at the demographics for some of our suburbs. And like these demos are great. The incomes are incredible. Retail just looks like tired and old. It's like, well, you're in the Northeast. You know, there hasn't been a ton of new development in the last 30 years. It's, it's not Phoenix. It's, you know, it's not Houston. Um, it's not San Diego. I always say the
0: real estate is ugly. It's messy, but the sales are great.
1: Exactly. And ultimately,
0: right, that, that that's all that matters.
1: Um, and then, you know, scalability um, is another thing. I mean, um, given the size of the market and, and you know, our MSA is, is made up of Northern Delaware, Southeastern Pennsylvania and Southern New Jersey. So, you know, retailers generally when they come into a market want to scale pretty quickly. No one wants to bring capital and resources to a market and only be able to do a handful of units. It's not a good use of their time or money. So um, I feel he's a really great region to scale in. And then, you know, the obvious of hour and a half from New York, two and a half hours from D.C., um, you know, it's, a, it's incredibly uh, well-positioned uh, regionally. Um, For sure. And that's – guess. Great, no, great and look, sure. uh, the, the obvious one that pe- people, people – uh, the, the obvious answer that people normally give is, really low cost of living compared to our some of our neighbors and so if you're looking to you know attract talent from our local colleges and universities of which we have many uh, or from out of state um, compared to a lot of our contemporaries from boston which has gotten outrageously expensive to new york obviously to dc i mean no brainer i mean philadelphia and, and the region as a whole is by far the most affordable to live and raise a family
0: yeah i'd also add uh i'd add you know the I think transit's great, right? Like I'm gonna go to the Philly ICSC, I'm gonna take the Amtrak right in. Um right, I think I think the culture is super interesting in the history. You got the Liberty Bell and the and the whole culture around it. Like I've run up the Rocky Stairs before and I think there's a lot of culture and um that that really and that history that you can't get in some of these new places and that creates tourism and a lot of other things that make Philly unique. So, uh, and you know, a yep. good cheesesteak, no doubt. Uh, so, For sure. For sure. <laughs> um, so I appreciate you giving the, the the Philly pitch. I think all your peers will be happy about that one. Um, anything else? What, what else are you seeing out there? What's, what's like, what's got you like, like really, Intrigued these days. What are you seeing out there?
1: Yeah, look. Um, on a macro level, I think the, the interesting thing to that I'm tracking is, you know, I, I see all these reports from our some of our bigger competitors, CB or Cushman or JLL, and they're producing the regional report, and it's you know average rents and average vacancy rates, and outsiders may look at that and they're you know determining supply demand ratios and. Um, I, I think those reports are are inherently just missing the biggest piece of, of real estate in any market. It feels particularly acute here in the Philly region. And that is oftentimes there's a disconnect between the type of supply and the type of demand. And I think that's true probably across our country right now. And it feels, again, particularly true here in Philly, which is There's a reasonable amount of supply out there, right? If you look at any of those reports, you'll see, uh, you know, whatever, anywhere from a 10 to 20% vacancy rate, maybe more depending on the market. There is supply out there. The problem is there's a lot of demand out there that doesn't fit the supply, right? So whether it's a a closed box and the market wants small shop space or it's, you know, anchor at a mall. And that market wants junior anchors and small shop and pads or whatever it is. I, I find that's the biggest obstacle right now is, is that the, the supply just doesn't match the demand. And in many cases, as you can appreciate, we just talked about construction pricing and financing. It's so capital intensive to make the, the demand, uh, sorry, to make the supply match that demand. Right. And, and sometimes it's, it's, it's impossible to pencil. And so... You know, you look at a market, you're like, wow, there, there's a ton of vacancy there, right? I mean, there should be plenty of stuff out there, and there's a ton of demand just sitting on the side waiting for the right type of supply to match up. So I think that is, is just an interesting thing to watch. And 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 you know, we need a a time in the cycle because it didn't happen the last time in the cycle where interest rates are super low, construction pricing is reasonable, and those two don't obviously always follow to, to correct some of that. Um, and, and now it's not a good point in the cycle to, to correct that. Um, so I think that's super interesting. And then, and then that that kind of turns into a, a bigger trend, which we're all seeing. And I, I think I'm um, I'm seeing my clients uh, grapple with it every day, which is you know the urbanization of the suburbs. Um, the suburban markets are adding density. They're responding to residential needs and desires to. Be more urban, right? People want to live urban, but they want to be in the suburbs with more space and better schools, et cetera, Uh, easier way of life. They don't have to drive around their block looking for parking, right, et cetera. And what's happening is, to to my point uh, that I just made about the supply demand not matching up, you're seeing supply add in these markets, but it's ground floor of a mixed use project with multifamily above, and you have a typical suburban mindset retailer. That says, oh man, I've wanted to be in that market for five years. You're finally building something, but it's got deck parking and it's not traditional surface parking lot and my customer can't just drive up and walk in. And, and so I think retailers are going to have to figure out how to, especially in the Northeast, maybe less true of like the Sunbelt or you know other parts of the country, but particularly in the Northeast where the new supply is going to come not in a traditional manner those retailers are going to have to adapt and and they kind of haven't yet. Right. They are like, wait a minute, my customer is going to have to take an elevator down. And, and like, this isn't the city. This is the middle of the suburbs. Why would they do that? Will they do that? How are we going to handle trash? How are we going to handle loading? Um, these retailers with such a suburban mindset just haven't had to do that, but that's coming. And I, I think that it'll be interesting to see which retailers adapt well to that and, and which don't. And, and the ones that don't, you know, as as every cycle goes in our business, like I don't think we'll be around.
0: Wow, super interesting. I'm going to back you up on a couple of things. So one, Here. you mentioned uh, you know the missing data in some of those reports, which I think is is a really interesting insight to talk about because you know a lot of institutional capital is using at least some of those reports as, as data inputs in their models, and so. Um, it, you know that that's super interesting, um, and I think one of the things that I am that's made it that, that line about the supply and demand. I think one of the things that we don't talk about is enough is there has been a lack of construction, but the, there has been you know when you aggregate over a decade, a significant amount of repurposing of of spaces, which has taken supply for retail off the market. You mentioned the old vacant box, but I could certainly point to the old vacant box that is now a self storage unit or a multifamily. And and therefore, there's just less retail space from that alone, from the the decommissioning, the the rezoning of what once was retail. And so I often say, if we were once oversorted in America, we are not anymore. Um, And And that's going to continue. That's going to continue,
1: right? I mean, whether it's multifamily or it's medical. self storage or it's cold storage or whatever it is yeah we we were the most over retailed market in the or nation in the world and we still are i'm sure i haven't looked at the recent numbers but that will continue um so it's only gonna get trickier and more complex
0: um but the, the the comment about like the new type of product going out there like the and and retailers having to adapt to what's available that's that's super interesting. Can Can you think of a retailer that? Because even for me, it's a little out of my day to day. I'm in the, I own shopping center space, right? So that's a little bit out of my day to day. Still, so can you think of a retailer who's that you've done work with that's taken a plunge and like gone outside the box a bit? Yet, has anyone made the plunge yet? That you can think of?
1: Yeah, I mean, look, I think. um I think the grocers and the fast casual tenants, just given their growth aspirations have had no choice. And right. So they're naturally the ones that are finding themselves doing it first um, and maybe being pioneers, Um, you know, whether it's uh, sprouts is probably a good one or even giant locally and their heirloom concept. Um, You know, they've, they've started to realize that if we can give our customers easy in, easy out, easy, clean, well-lit place to park, Um, We can get loading um, somewhere in the ground floor of the basement. Um, You know, we're we're, we're willing to try to start to change some suburban habits, right? Um, uh, Shake Shack is a client of mine. um, And I think they're doing a great job of this, realizing that um, not every suburban market can be a freestanding pad. Not every suburban market you're going to get drive-through. So your choice is skip over the market and wait you know forever or whatever that means or say i want to be in that market i can adapt um doesn't have to be drive through i can go in the ground floor mixed use um shake shack has the benefit of having some urban dna in them right so they were sure. able to kind of wrap it around that maybe more than others but but i'm i'm talking you know the, the ones that i'm i'm curious to see how it'll all shake out um i'm talking about the you know typical power center suburban um yeah you know junior I'm, boxes even a little I'm bit interested, smaller i'm yeah. interested
0: i'm interested to see if it happens because uh that that'll be fascinating and y- you i mean and at I some point
1: these, these kids need to need to keep growing right whether whether it's a wall street thing or as i said earlier an investor thing they need to keep growing and as we start taking as you said more supply off the market um and these markets get tighter and tighter right the northeast especially and other parts of the country are not getting any less dense. Um, something's going to have to give. Um, so I'm not suggesting the whole world going to be mixed use and apartments above and retail on the ground floor. Clearly, that that's not the case. But, um, you know, it could be parking counts, right? We all know retailers that think they need a certain amount of parking and, and we all roll our eyes and we're like, the world's changed, right? With rideshare and public transportation and whatever, like you, you don't need those parking ratios or townships. You don't need those parking ratios. Um so I, I think everyone's hands going to be forced to, to to start to change, and uh, I, I guess what I'm saying is, you know, the the fast casuals of the world, the grocers of the world, seem to be uh, through no through no choice of their own, you know, kind of leading the pack there.
0: Very cool. Well, listen, this has been great. I really appreciate the time, Doug. Um, I want I want to take us to the last part of the show. I call this Retail Wisdom. I got three fun questions for you. Are you ready? Let's do it. All right. Question one. What extinct retailer do you wish would come back from the dead?
1: Um, I'm going to give a a curveball here. One of my old clients, Performance Bicycle. Okay. I'm a big cyclist, so a little bit of a, a near and dear to my heart. But for those that remember, Performance Bicycle was around, and they went bankrupt literally six to nine months before COVID hit. And if everyone remembers what happened when COVID hit, bike shops were like, the it was the greatest business to be in, right? They couldn't make the bikes fast enough. Every bike retailer went crazy, yeah. crazy sales. And if Performance Bike had literally, I mean, obviously no one knew the pandemic was coming, but had they just stuck around for six, nine more months, we wouldn't be talking, to them about, it, uh, talking about them as an extinct retailer.
0: Wow. What a great answer. No one said that yet. So I appreciate it. All
1: right. Question Absolutely. two. You usually get the uh, the blockbuster video, yes. cowboy, aim.
0: Yes. Toys R Us. That's a big one.
1: Toys R Us. Sure.
0: Uh, question two. What's the last item over twenty dollars you bought in a store? Oh, um, it was
1: um, it definitely was a pair of sneakers. Um, I'm a big sneaker guy. I have a a problem, I would say. I'm, a, a, <laughs> I'm a um, I have too many, and uh, so yeah, I think it was a pair of Jordan Lowe's um, that I definitely didn't need and
0: um, impulse buy for sure. Okay. Last question: If you and I were shopping at Target and I lost you, what aisle would I find you in? Wow, oh, it's easy
1: toy toy aisle, no doubt. Um, just because my kids would probably be there and. As you and I talked about, I have a, a, a growing number of them uh, uh, expanding expanding family, so uh, definitely the toy aisle. A, there's probably always something that I'll buy for them, but B, it's just a good place to keep them occupied uh, You know, while I'm trying to do, do a shop there uh, with my wife, ride a bike and you know, throw a
0: ball or whatever. Awesome. Well, Doug, this has been great. Really appreciate it. Um, thanks so much, man. Yeah, man.
1: You got it, man. Really. Really uh, appreciative of your time and love what you're doing. Uh, keep keep doing it. And uh, I'll be I'll be here listening to, to all the future podcasts for sure.
0: Excellent. Thank you for listening to Retail Retold. If you want to share a story about a retail real estate deal that you were a part of on our show, please reach out to us at retailretold at dlcmgmt.com. This show highlights the stories behind the deals from all perspectives, so it doesn't matter if you are a retailer, broker, entrepreneur, architect, or an attorney. Also, don't forget to subscribe to Retail Retold so you don't miss out on next Thursday's episode.